I'll be reading the scripture out of Luke 4, 1 through 15. It says, In Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on the other hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said that you shall not put your Lord, your God, to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding countries, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Thanks, Ronnie, for reading that important passage of Scripture. Well, I look out at you all, and it's, it's just great to see your faces again. I don't know about you, I can get down sometimes in the middle of the week, but when I see you, oh man, it's like being with family again. So it's great to see you. Well, good morning, I'm I'm Len, one of the elders, and currently the interim pastor of care, I'm still not used to that yet, at East Campus of Parkview Church. We're in the process of looking for a new pastor for East Campus to continue the marvelous work that God has done so far. But bear with us as we experiment a bit from week to week as we seek the best way to move forward together in the interim. Pray for us as in the process. So why are we here? Just think about that for a second. Is it just to greet each other, to see each other again? No, it goes way beyond that, doesn't it? We're here to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to make much of how great he is, to behold the wondrous mystery. Yes, behold the wondrous mystery. But we're also here to grow in Christ and his family. And we're also here to reach our neighborhood. We're a small church right now, and there's some great, great uh, enjoyment in that. But we're not seeking to stay small, okay? We're seeking to, to bless our neighborhood and bring other people into the family and grow. Grow as followers of Christ and and as fellow heirs of the grace of life. So that's why we're here. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, 
verse 21. Now, Ronnie started in chapter 4, verse 1, but we're going to start at chapter 3, verse 21. If you need a Bible, there should be one close by underneath. Uh, underneath the seats, close by. The passage that Ronnie read is the culmination of Luke's three-part presentation of Jesus' qualifications for his mission as Messiah and Savior. So we're going to examine all three, beginning in verse 21 of Luke chapter 3. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have much on our minds. I have much on my mind. Father, nothing is, is as, as important as having Jesus on our minds, on my mind. So please, God, quiet our minds so we can focus on Jesus who loved us so much that he became a man and fought for us. Amazing. Holy Spirit, use your truth this morning to transform us into the character of Jesus. For your glory. Amen. Are you qualified? Let me ask this again. Are you qualified? We got a hand over there. He's qualified. Any others? Okay. Well, that's a question that's often on our minds, isn't it? Remember when you brought your first baby home from the hospital and you thought, am I qualified to be a parent? I remember that. Is this boy qualified to take my daughter out? <laughs> now, you, you young men who have young daughters, your time is coming, okay? You will ask that. Is this person qualified to be my surgeon? And it goes on and on. The question of qualifications is important. We want to know, that is this person capable of doing what is at stake? The questions of qualifications was important in the Bible also. There were qualifications for prophets, and there were qualifications for the Messiah. And from today, back through the centuries to Judea, to Judea, to Judea and Galilee in the early 30s AD, the questions were flying. Who is he? Where does he get his, such authority? What are his qualifications? People saw something unique about Jesus and asked, who is this? In chapter 5 and chapter 7, the Pharisees saw him forgive sin, and they asked, who is this? Where did he get such authority? What are his qualifications? In chapter 8, the disciples saw him calm a storm, and they asked, who is this? The question of qualifications of Jesus as Messiah and Savior is one of the most important questions we will ever answer. Was he just a man who declared himself to be Messiah like so many others were doing? Was he just a, mis a misguided reformer? Or was he indeed the Messiah and Savior? And what does his qualifications mean for us? Is Jesus qualified to accomplish what is at stake in our lives? In today's section of Luke's gospel, we, we will see the affirmation of heaven, his heritage, and hell itself 
that Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah and Savior of the world. So my big idea is this. The affirmation of heaven, his heritage, and hell show that Jesus is qualified to be Messiah and Savior. And this should spur us on to become his whole disciples. Let me say that again. The affirmations of heaven, his heritage, and hell show that Jesus is qualified to be Messiah and Savior. And this should spur us on to become whole disciples. So where, where, where are we in our journey through Luke's gospel? Well, first we found that Luke, Luke's aim was to give confidence, to bolster the faith of Theophilus and others, and us today in the truth that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He had come to save all sorts of people. And we studied the spirit-orchestrated bursts of John and Jesus. And I've seen that Luke was presenting a bunch of unique eyewitness credentials for Jesus. Angels flitting around making announcements. A baby leaping in a womb. Prophets speaking. A 12-year-old boy amazing scribes and priests in the temple. It's obvious that something, or rather someone, someone big is coming on the scene. Well, in today's section, he enters the scene, ready for his mission. And Luke presents these three evidences of Jesus' qualifications to be ready to start his ministry. Their first affirmation is this, the witness of heaven. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father affirmed his son. Luke wrote in chapter 3, verse 21, and when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The main events were the Spirit descending on him, and then the centerpiece of this event was God the Father vocally affirming his son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Well, what did Luke mean by putting this story here just before Jesus began his ministry? Well, first, I think he meant to show that Jesus had arrived. His father's affirmation confirms that during the mostly silent years of his childhood, the shaping of the Messiah and our Savior was accomplished. Throughout infancy, childhood, adolescence, and on into manhood, Jesus grew from grace to grace, from holiness to holiness, in submission and love. Without a stain of sin, he was perfectly righteous and ready to enter his mission. The second, to have the Spirit visibly descend on Jesus pointed to him being the Spirit-anointed Messiah. Isaiah wrote in chapter 11 of his prophecy, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So the Spirit's presence in Jesus' life is a theme in Luke's gospel. In these verses, we see the, the Spirit descending on Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 1, we see, the, see that he's full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. 
In chapter 4, verse 14, we see him beginning his ministry in the power of the Spirit. Why? Why did Luke mention all that? Well, perhaps we get this idea from Paul that we learn that his, in, his incarnation involved emptying himself. He voluntarily set aside his glory and the use of his divine attributes. He allowed himself to, be, to submit fully to the will of his Father and to depend fully on the power of the Spirit and to live fully as a human being. If Jesus depended on the Spirit, it's logical for us to assume, to assume that we should also, right? Well, the second qualification is the witness of his heritage. Jesus' royal lineage affirms his qualifications. Luke continues in chapter, in chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. Now note, I'm going to, going to skip some verses. So here we go, okay? So starting in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Haley. Now skipping to the middle of verse 31, the son of Nathan, the son of David, and skipping to the end of 33, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, and the son of Abraham. And skipping to 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So having the correct genealogy is an essential credential for one claiming to be the Messiah. So presenting Jesus' genealogy was important. But Luke's genealogy of Jesus is different than Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. There are many differences, such as Luke's genealogy is longer. It contains 77 names compared to Matthew's symmetry-driven 42 names. But the biggest difference is that the two lines of ancestry are completely different from Jesus' grandfather back to David. How do we explain that genealogical difference? Well, the simplest explanation is that there were different methods for describing someone's lineage. And there are a number of valid explanations, but the data is not clear enough to decide for sure which one is correct. But a popular view is that Luke's, Luke portrays Jesus' biological ancestry through Mary, while Matthew presents Jesus' legal right to the throne through Joseph. More importantly, what does the genealogy show? What did Luke want to show us? Well, first of all, that Jesus is a man of prophecy. His lineage included King David, Judah, and Abraham. And the prophet spoke of the Messiah coming for the line of Abraham, Judah, and David. He was also a man of royal lineage. God promised King David a descendant who would rule on the throne forever. And as the resurrected son of David, Jesus is especially qualified to be that king. He's also a man related to every other human being. Luke shows us that because Jesus was a descendant of Adam, he is a human being who is related to every other human being who has ever lived. So what? The big one is Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world. That is huge. 
Luke demonstrates that Jesus has a claim to the messianic throne through David, but he is also related to all humankind through Adam. Ultimately, all humanity is one, and with Jesus comes not only the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope for Israel, but also the hope of all people. Now, the question of ancestry is important for us too. Who are we, who are we related to? We have no choice humanly. We're all related to Adam. And unfortunately, we, we inherited from him his sin nature, spiritual deadness. But now we have a choice. We can change our spiritual ancestry. We can become related to the second Adam, Jesus, and find forgiveness from sin and new life and a new identity. So the witness of heaven and Jesus' baptism and the witness of the, his heritage point to Jesus being Messiah and Savior. But there's more. There is the witness of hell. Jesus' victory over the devil's temptation. Luke sets the context of this battle in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Do you believe that? So what's going on here? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit was at the center of this coming battle. This battle wasn't about Jesus stumbling into some sin like we do. No, the Holy Spirit guided him and readied him for this battle. He was full of the Spirit, which means that he was spiritually mature. He was ready to go. Luke also presents Jesus as adversary, and he's no slouch, is he? It's the devil, it's Satan. And the Bible describes him as a liar and murderer and accuser and evil one and God of this world and tempter and prince of the power of the air. What a resume. We probably never face the big kahuna ourselves since he is not omnipresent. But we do face the temptations of a system, his domain of darkness in which we live. But Jesus battled the big one personally. Something else we see is that the reality of Jesus' incarnation, he was really hungry. He also sweated, had B.O., and got tired. He did not just resemble humanity in some qualities. Rather, in every respect, he was made like us, but without sin. And when he became human, again, he placed the exercise of his divine knowledge and power under, under the discretion of his father. And at his temptation, Jesus resisted the onslaught of Satan as a real man, depending on God for his strength. He was tempted like we are. Now, what was this battle all about? Well, first, again, most importantly, it's about proving his qualifications, the qualifications for Jesus for his ministry. But second, this battle was about Satan trying to derail God's plan to save people. If Jesus failed this test, the plan was toast. So what's on the line? The Apostle Paul wrote it this way. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Was the world going to be trapped in Satan's kingdom of darkness? Or would there be a way out? A way to be transferred to Jesus' kingdom of light? That's what's on the line. You know, we read about the angels wanting to look into things concerning our salvation. I wonder, were the angels feeling... I wonder what the angels were feeling as they watched Jesus' temptation unfold before their eyes. Were they holding their breath as the fight began? When I was a young boy, I used to watch the Friday night fights on TV with my dad. Anybody remember those? A few of us do. Okay, all righty. Watching boxers like Sugar Ray Robinson and Floyd Patterson this battle of Jesus and Satan can be compared to a cosmic heavyweight championship of the, of the universe boxing match. This is just the first three-round bout of many fights Jesus will battle with Satan and other demonic forces. And what was the nature of his temptation? Well, basically, Jesus' temptation was all about the choice to be faithful, obedient, and submissive, submissive, submissive son or like Adam, go his own way, seek his own comfort first. Now, does that sound like our struggle? It is, isn't it? Let's set the scene. The backdrop for this match was a desolate wasteland. No McDonald's for miles. In one corner sat the weary, 40 days hungry Jesus. In the other corner moved the glorious Satan radiating power and pride, elegant evil. A similar match happened some millennia earlier. The first Adam fell to the glorious shining one in Eden. And now the second Adam faces Satan's powerful, alluring presence amid a barren desolation. Jesus was all alone with no support except for the Spirit. The jaws of hell opened and Satan spoke. He made three tempting offers to the weakened, hungry, dirty, smelly son of God. Could he get a knockout? The bell rings. The fight is on. Satan comes out with temptation number one, which is all about sustenance without submission. We read in verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. What's the character of this temptation? Well, again, it's all about the choice between submission and sustenance. What was he going to choose? His own comfort or commitment? Relief or submission? A demand to relieve the suffering now or wait on his father? This, again, was a real temptation because Jesus had a real body which had been without food for six weeks. What kind of food would you be thinking of at that point? Now, the closest I ever get to starvation is when I have to prep for a colonoscopy. <laughs> Some of you know that, okay? While going through the suffering, I encourage myself by thinking of the steak I'm going to have when it's all over. But Jesus was a long way from a steakhouse. There was no food. None of us can turn rocks into bread or steak. 
But Jesus could, and his body was screaming, just do it. But behind his body's craving, Jesus was tempted to provide for his material needs apart from the will and provision of his father and to momentarily suspend living like a human. Will Jesus follow the lead of the Spirit and and manifest unwavering trust in God to supply his needs? Or will he relieve his hunger by exercising his, his own power apart from dependence on God? The first Adam was tempted by the devil to satisfy his hunger by disobeying, and he caved in. What about Jesus, the second Adam? And the angels held their breath. So we looked at the character of Satan's temptation. What was Jesus' choice? Well, he chose submission to God over his own comfort. Jesus swung back with a powerful blow. He said in verse 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He looked Satan in the proverbial eye and swung away saying, nothing doing, bub. Man should not live by bread alone. There's something more important than hunger and bread right now. It's trusting God's word. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8.3, where the Lord tells Israel that there was something more important, more sustaining than bread. It was God's word, his promises. Jesus submitted to the Spirit's leading and trusted God fully to provide. In essence, he said, I will not take things into my own hands. My Father has not willed to immediately provide bread, but I will trust him and his word. After all, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is responded as the perfect, submissive, obedient second Adam. And the angels cheered, all glory to Jesus. And the party started, and the first round goes to Jesus. Where do we find our sustenance in life? From our children, our homes, our careers, our hobbies, or from God's truth? When the chips are down, who do we turn to? To God or to whatever will give us temporary comfort? Well, the second round of the three-round bout is about to begin. Jesus is ahead, but Satan is still ready to swing away. The bell rings, and we come to the second temptation, which is all about a crown without a cross. Luke continues in verses 5 through 7. And the devil took him up, And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you, Jesus, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. The character of the temptation is this Satan offered the easy way out a crown without a cross. Jesus could have have his kingship over the nations, authority and glory without suffering on the cross. All he had to do was was worship Satan. But the effects would have been disastrous. A split second of cosmic treason against his father would have thundered across the universe forever. Would the Trinity have survived? Instead of eternal salvation for many, there would be no atonement, No forgiveness, no adoption, 
No escape from Satan's domain of darkness. Hell, not heaven, would have won. It came down to a lonely choice of whom he would worship. And the angels held their breath. What was his choice? Well, again, Jesus, Jesus hit back and in verse 80 says, It is written, You shall not worship, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So he chose to be, again, the faithful, obedient, committed Son of God. And his choice would be a way that led to a suffering cross before any glory. Unlike Adam, Jesus remained loyal to God alone by refusing the devil's offer. And the angels cheered and, and, cheered and the party resumed. And after two rounds, Jesus is ahead, only one round to go. You know, our battle's the same, isn't it? Our desire or devotion to him? Serving self or serving the Savior? The song of our culture, which is part of the devil's kingdom of darkness, is take the easy way. Be true to yourself. You're number one. And our secular culture reinforces the desire for the autonomy of ourself. It reinforces our desires to be what we want to be, to do what we want to do, and to make our own happiness our goal. So it's round three. Jesus is still ahead, but the devil can still get a knockout. The bell rings. The devil comes out weaving with some deceptive blows. We come to the third temptation, which is, as I put it, it's a choice of recognition over submission. Recognition or submission. Starting in verse 9, and he, Satan, took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command the angels concerning you to guard you. And also, on, three, on, the, on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What was the character of the temptation? First of all, let's think about the location. It's probably the roof of the royal porch on the temple's southeast corner, where it loomed over the Kedron Valley some 450 feet below. Jumping off here would be a good test of the old adage, it's not the fall that hurts you, it's the sudden stop. So there they are, they're standing, the wind ruffling, their clothes and the beards, and the temptation begins with, with the devil quoting Psalm 91. And there's kind of, the temptation that Jesus faced was twofold. The first was to choose the easy, the spectacular way for self-recognition without submitting to his father and going through the rejection and redemption. Rabbis believe that when the Messiah came, he would come to the temple and present himself. What more spectacular way than have angels save him from a disastrous fall? But Satan's ploy was a misuse of Scripture, wasn't it? It's the kind of thing we can easily do when we take a passage out of context. The second aspect of the temptation was that the devil suggested Jesus could prove he trusted God's word by taking him at his word. In this case, Satan again twisted the Bible to tempt Jesus. The devil said something like, you quote the Bible. You say you believe the Bible. You claim to be a faithful man of God's word. Prove it. Here's your chance to show me and God. This is what the people are looking for. Jump, and the whole world will know who you are. 
But in reality, to do what Satan suggested would not be stepping out in faith for God's glory. Jesus would be disobeying God's plan and presumptuously expect God to protect him. He would be overstepping the boundaries of letting God be God and letting his father set the agenda, which again would destroy God's program for rescuing people. If Jesus rebelled, he could no longer save us in our rebellion. What was his choice? Again, the angels held their breath. What would Jesus do? Well, he swung away again. He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus recognized that he would, not, he would not be the submissive and obedient son of God if he challenged his father this way, to demand or force his father to do something for his own self-centered goal would be arrogance, not submission. Jesus, again, shows submission over self. And the angels erupted with joy, joyful cheers. It was a TKO, a technical knockout. All glory to Jesus. Let's consider for a moment that phrase where Jesus said, don't put the Lord to the test. You know, how can we apply Jesus' warning to avoid putting God to the test? First, we remember that this passage is more about the victory of Jesus over a particular satanic attack than it is a lesson about how we should avoid temptation. But it sure illustrates lots of good tactics. Okay? And Jesus' point in general seems to be that we should not overstep the boundary of letting God be God. More specifically, don't try to demand or force God to do what we want. But aren't we supposed to step out in faith? Aren't we supposed to believe that God will do the impossible? We hear that all the time. Well, here's my uninspired, very human, very simplistic stab at how to answer that, okay? Stepping out in faith is not the same as stepping off the temple, temple roof. Huh? Back the truck up here. What do you mean by that? Okay. Let me put it in some other words. What, when, does, when does stepping out in faith cross the line into sinful demands or testing of God? Here's some of my thoughts. First of all, stepping out in faith becomes testing God when we overstep the boundary of letting God be God by assuming or demanding that he must respond a certain way. Second, stepping out in faith becomes testing God when we assume God will save us during our intentional disobedience. God's protection from the highway patrol when we're speeding is not guaranteed. God's blessing when we plunge into a marriage that is clearly unbiblical is not guaranteed. Third, stepping out in faith becomes testing God when we assume or demand that God bless us a certain way because we served him in some way. God, I gave up my study, a night of study to serve you, so please give me an A on the test tomorrow. I tried that. Didn't work. Okay. Four, stepping out in faith becomes testing God or when we deny God's faithfulness by demanding more proof. God, if you do this, I'll never doubt you again. Or if you don't, I'll never believe you again. So to step out in faith, make sure that what you ask or what we ask 
or believe is, first of all, biblical. But also, make sure it's covered with the attitude, not my will, but your will. So, Jesus won the fight with Satan. What does this win over Satan mean? Well, Jesus, again, was affirmed as qualified for his mission. Where Adam failed his temptation in the past, Jesus succeeded. Secondly, the, the, to, to, to plan for our salvation, the plan for our salvation was still on track. The possibility of being transferred from the kingdom of Satan's darkness to the kingdom of Jesus was still on the table. And the angels were having a party. Here's some closing thoughts. The big one is Jesus has the testimony of heaven, heritage, and hell that he is the qualified Messiah and Savior of all the world. All glory to Jesus. This is huge, isn't it? If we could comprehend that. Consequently, Jesus is, is the one who can save us from the penalty of our sin. If you have not yet found forgiveness for your sins that separates you from God, come to Jesus. Place your trust in him as your Savior who paid the penalty for your sin. And, offer, and he offers full and complete forgiveness. Third, Jesus is the one who can save us from our brokenness from our past. The only genealogy that matters is being connected to Jesus. Okay? Through faith in Jesus as our Savior, we are united with him. So we have a new identity. In him, we are no longer the accumulated facts of our past. In him, we are no longer what we or others think or say about us. In him, we are God's children, bought with an incalculable price, set apart for noble purposes. He looks at us and he thinks, you are my beloved children. In you, I am well pleased. And Jesus also is showing us the way to have victory over temptation that we face, live in the power of God's spirit. Know and believe and obey God's word. But like Jesus, we must make a choice, self or submission. But like Jesus, we have the power to make that choice. Like Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. It sounds so simple, those four things, doesn't it? But it still is difficult. So number five, when we blow it again and again, Jesus is able to sympathize with us when we fail. Why? Because he never gave in to temptation. Consequently, he knows the full force of temptation, how powerful it can be. Think about the night before he was crucified, when he pleaded with his father for another way while his closest friends slept. You think Satan was there offering another way? Probably was. Think of the power, how powerful that was. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows our struggle. He can sympathize. And so we can boldly go to God to find mercy and grace when we struggle.
Jesus is the real deal. He is the fully qualified Messiah and Savior who is on his mission now. And he invites us to come along to become whole disciples who learn, love, and live Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, cause our confidence in Jesus as our Savior to grow. We admit it's weak. Help us understand that we are your beloved children in whom you are well pleased. Is that really true, Father? Well, burn it into our hearts. Help us also understand the implications of being in your kingdom and no longer in Satan's kingdom. And by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, enable us to withstand temptations and be transformed into the character of Jesus. Oh, Father, we ask this for your glory, for our good. Amen.